can God, can God really spread a table in the wilderness? Can God really spread a table in the wilderness? Honestly, I, I think it's a good question. I think it's a fair question to ask. Because the wilderness is, after all, a harsh place. Can God really spread a table in the wilderness? The question kept on bothering me and echoing in my mind, even though I had tempted to, I was tempted to at first categorize it outright as an improper question, right? A question of the unfaithful, a question of the doubtful, a question of the scornful and of the greedy. And that seems to be, after all, the, how the question is framed by the writer of the psalm in which I met it this week. In OIC's Summer in the Psalms, as we call it, we have been wandering through different songs and prayers in the book of Psalms in our Bible throughout the whole summer. And this week, I found myself in the landscape of Psalm 78. And when Azaf, who is ascribed as the author of Psalm 78, when he presents this question, this question, can God really, can God really spread a table in the wilderness? Well, he presents it in the mouth of those who rebelled, rebelled in the wilderness against the Most High. God had delivered them from Egypt, as Azaf recalls. God had opened the sea that they may cross, and God had made water flow from the rock that they may drink. And yet, they continued to sin against him, rebelling in the wilderness, in the wilderness against the Most High. They willfully put God to the test by demanding the food they craved, they spoke against God. They said, can God really spread a table in the wilderness? True, he struck the rock and water gushed out. Streams flowed abundantly. But can he also give us bread? Can he supply meat for his people? There's little doubt that the altar of this psalm considered their question an act of rebellion. And he's not alone. This, that is how the biblical narrative of Exodus frames that question in that context. But still, <laughs> the wilderness is a harsh place. The wilderness is a hard place. And I couldn't stop thinking, wouldn't I have made that very same question? Haven't I repeatedly made that same question? Does that mean that my faith is insufficient? Does that mean that I am in a constant state of rebellion? Because the wilderness is a hard place. The Israelites weren't asking this question in the comfort of our church pews and our welfare state. They were asking it in the desert. God had provided water and deliverance where it seemed unlikely. True. But as they looked around, there was no sign of life. 
The whole environment screamed of the impossibility of life. In fact, of the overwhelming probability of death and starvation. You have that many people out in the wilderness, in the desert. Can God really spread a table in the wilderness? Can God really provide in this stark reality? Can he beat the apparently unbeatable odds? Now, I haven't myself experienced the wilderness of the desert, right, of the fear of starvation, but, but the wilderness as, as a place of lack, the place where the condition seems to favor death rather than life, a reduced life rather than a full one, the wilderness as the place where the odds are stacked against you and survival or flourishing seems not only unlikely but improbable. That wilderness is familiar ground in the world we live in. Haven't you faced as you read the news or looked around you? Haven't you faced the reality of the hunger in the world? of the millions dying having nothing to feed on while a few feed under misery to become even wealthier? Can God really spread a table in this wilderness of greed and inequality? Haven't you seen the wilderness of violence where nations war over natural resources, cultural pride, and religious bigotry? where kindness is a rare bloom and aggressions are the very stones against which we harden the soles of our feet in our daily walk, where skin, gender, ethnicity, able-bodiedness, faith are somehow taken as acceptable measures for dignity and the right to live a full life. Can God really spread a table in this wilderness? Haven't you seen and experienced the wilderness of the mind and of the soul? When the clouds of doubt and insecurity, of trauma and abuse, of loneliness, and many more mount an unsurmountable storm against which our inner selves just can't take shelter. Can God really spread a table in this wilderness? I could go on, right? I could go on. Wilderness takes many shapes. And I couldn't help but realize this is not their question alone. It is mine. Can God really spread a table in the wilderness? But I must go back to the psalm. I must go back to the psalm. Because the question is not its beginning and it's not its end. It's a question asked in the middle. And that's important. It's important that it is a question that is asked in the middle. Even though the beginning and the end don't really give us a ready answer with which to resolve this question. The beginning, in fact, it invites us into a mystery. It invites us into a mystery, and what follows is a kind of a melody of a well-crafted dissonance. This is how the psalm starts. This is Psalm 78 from verse, I'm going to read just from verse 1 to 8. It's a long psalm. My people, hear my teaching. Listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things, things of old. 
Things we have heard and known, things our ancestors have told us, we will not hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done, his decreed statutes for Jacob and established the law in Israel, which he commanded our ancestors to teach their children. So the next generation would know them, even the children yet to be born, and they in turn will tell their children, then they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands. They would not be like their ancestors, a stubborn and rebellious generation whose hearts were not loyal to God, whose spirits were not faithful to him. The mystery in the psalm, it was not at first obvious to me. What I met at first was, was not yet as profound as a mystery. It was more like a certain perplexity, an oddness. And the perplexity arises from the psalm announcing a parable, right? The sound announcing a parable, the proclamation of hidden things, and yet immediately declaring that they are things that we have heard and known. What is it? And indeed, the things that the psalm announces are not hidden in the least. They are the public history of the people who are to sing this song. So where then is the parable? Where are the hidden things? And the perplexity arises also from the psalm announcing, as we have just read, that these things are to be taught to the children, to the next generations, and that this passing on of this knowledge would assure that they would put their trust in God and would not forget his deeds, but would keep his commands and not be like the stubborn and rebellious generation of their ancestors. Yet, the psalm goes on to expose the very opposite. Unfaithfulness and rebellion are repeated again and again and again, despite the common knowledge of the great deeds and wonders of God and despite punishment. Following from verse 8 and onwards, we are met with a juxtaposition of this very dissonance that the psalm is dealing with. The psalmist speaks of how the people forgot and were unfaithful to the covenant, and then it speaks of God's wonders and God's acts of faithfulness and providence, and then he speaks of the people rebelling and putting God to the test, to which God responds with anger, and then with giving them what they asked for, and then with renewed anger again. And then there is a sort of an interlude more or less in the middle of the psalm, or the second two-thirds of the psalm. There is an interlude, and in this interlude, the psalmist emphasizes this pattern. And this is from verse 32 to, to 41. In spite of all this, they kept on sinning. In spite of his wonders, they did not believe. So he ended their days in futility and their years in terror. Whenever God slew them, they would seek him. They eagerly turned to him again. They remembered that God was their rock and the God most high was their redeemer. But then they would flatter him with their mouths, lying to him with their tongues. Their hearts were not loyal to him. They were not faithful to his covenant. Yet he was merciful. He forgave their iniquities and did not destroy them. Time after time, he restrained his anger and did not stir up his full wrath. 
He remembered that they were but flesh, a passing breeze that does not return. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the wasteland. Again and again they put God to the test. They vexed the holy God of Israel. Punishment, repentance, testing and rebellion, providence. And the pattern presents itself almost like a vicious circle in which neither punishment nor providence seem to be able to safeguard faithfulness. And what follows after verse 42, after this interlude, is a repetition again of the pattern exposed and now on another revisiting to Israel's history and this time with a focus on on them arriving and establishing themselves on the promised land. Focus on a promised land. And as we come to this point, I think it's, it's kind of fair to ask, is there any hope? Is there any hope? Is there any hope left, or are we left with only irony and disillusionment? Is there anything beyond this pattern? Is that the secret, the mystery? The hopelessness? Is there hope? The psalmist, I believe, he sees hope. The psalmist sees hope. He doesn't end the psalm in punishment or in rebellion. He ends it with the proclamation of a new start. The Lord awoke as from sleep. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheep pen to be the shepherd of his people, Jacob, of Israel, his inheritance. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart, with skillful hands, he led them. Now, Azaf, to whom this psalm is ascribed, he was an appointed musician in the court of King David. So he found hope in the reign of David. In, in is a united Israel under a king who had been appointed and anointed by God and a king who loved God, a king who would honor and announce the stories of God's wonders for the next generations. It seemed like a promising renewal and that's, that's the tone in which the psalm ends. But we know more than Azaf, don't we? We know more than Azaf. We know of the downfall of the kingdom of David in the next generations. We know of David's own incoherence and at oftentimes hypocrisy. So thousands of years later, we ask again, is there any hope? Or are we only left with irony and disillusionment? Can God really spread a table in the wilderness? But the downfall of David, and our own for that matter, they are not the end of the mystery. If we listen deeper, Deeper than the perplexity of these dissonances, there's something there. 
There is something there. God is there. Still there. Why is God still there? Why is God still there? Beneath or beyond or perhaps despite the perceptions of God's people regarding God's favor and disfavor, God's punishment and God's providence, God is there in the wilderness. Hope. Hope is not the wind that stops. (laughs) It's the the meal that can be smelled by the hungry in the middle of a sandstorm. That's hope. In retelling the story, the psalmist is dealing with the precise mystery that God is still there, and for some reason, he is offering renewal. At his time and place, that renewal takes the shape of the reign of King David, and that's where, that's the space and time he's in. But again, God is there and he's offering renewal. And, and in a sense, it doesn't make sense by the standards that the psalmist himself holds their history against. He shouldn't still be there. Through all this disobedience and, and this circle, But there, God is. A presence that subverts the logic and it's like a tone that inhabits that limier frequency between hearing and feeling and somehow not only withstands, but it's capable of even imparting beauty to these dissonances of this melody of the wilderness. God is still there and suddenly suddenly god is there telling the parables of mystery himself speaking in the incarnate lips of jesus of nazareth jesus the teller of parables that's where we know the parables from isn't it jesus the teller of parable. When Matthew wants to tell of Jesus, the speaker of parables, he quotes Psalm 78. And he does it among parables of hope and mystery in Matthew 13. My favorite chapter in Matthew, by the way. (laughs) The chapter of the parables, the chapter of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is like a field with wheat and weed that grow side by side and the king bids his time in separating them so that the wheat may bear fruit into that very field. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that grows from the unlikeliness of its tiny size and becomes a shelter for wandering birds. 
The kingdom of God is like the yeast that spreads through the dough, giving it life. It's like a hidden treasure of immense value, like a pearl for which it's worth giving everything. And there among these parables, Matthew says, Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. And so was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Psalm 78. Matthew invites us to listen to the mystery of the presence of the kingdom and of the presence of God. But John also takes on Psalm 78. And John eh, does something more. John invites us to the table. John invites us to the table. In John chapter 6, from verses 25, in one of those tellings of Jesus that shook the very core of the disciples, this is what John tells us. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And this is a direct quote from Psalm 78. And Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, for the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And he goes on to talk about himself as the bread of life and about saying of his blood and his flesh as givers of life. And here, John invites us into the table. He invites us to the mystery that we can't grasp, but that we dine on. That God gives himself. That God is himself a banquet of life in the wilderness that never spoils. That his grace never spoils. That the possibility of renewal, the possibility of repentance and forgiveness never spoils. The most profound gift of God is not the new bread, <laughs> that will go stale. It is not the new miracles that will be forgotten. It is not the new religiosities that will mold. It is that he gives himself. 
Hope is not the wind that stops blowing in the wilderness. It is the meal that can be shared by the hungry in the middle of a sandstorm. Jesus is our table in the wilderness. And we keep coming to it. This table is the place where we start again and where we by faith insist that there is enough. The table of grace and forgiveness and life in the wilderness. And the table from which we go to express the kingdom of the mustard seed. <laughs> and this is a circle, right? This coming to the table of the Lord. This is a circle that is not a circle of failure and restarting, <laughs> like that vicious circle. But it is like a daily meal, right? A daily meal that keeps us going and that heals our weaknesses a table to which we come when we're healthy and to which we come when we're hurting and to which we come when we're mending and to which we come when we're broken because it's the life that keeps us going and keeps us on the way and keeps us living and gives us the possibility of being these expressions of the kingdom of God in the middle of the wilderness. And the wilderness is a hard place. We can't have a faith that pretends it doesn't or it isn't. And we don't. We don't. That is why we come again and again to the table of the Lord. Sometimes we do it like this, like we will do it today sacramentally, <laughs> by meeting each other and by together taking of the bread and taking of the wine and insisting God is here. The possibility of renewal and repentance is here. Sometimes we do it in the gestures and prayers and stumbling of our daily lives. But again and again, again and again, we hear that voice of the shepherd. And of the images of David, that is probably the most helpful. <laughs> That's the one that Jesus chose in his parables, isn't it? The shepherd the one who walks the fields with his sheep. The one who knows them by name and who goes where they fall to pick them up. The one who knows the lay of the land, the rhythm of our hunger and thirst, because he's out there with us in the wilderness. May the Lord bless you and keep you
May the Lord make his face shine upon each and every one of you. May he turn his face towards you and may you know that you are seen, that you are loved, that you are welcome in his presence. And so may you go in the peace of Christ and serve the Lord joyfully.